It's good to be with you. We're continuing this study of uh, the minor prophets. We're in Habakkuk, and it is just judgment, judgment, judgment. Actually, we, we've talked about at the beginning that it's, we see God's glory displayed in Him bringing salvation through judgment. And this morning, I, I had uh, Steve read Psalm 13, and it's a shorter psalm. There's a number of psalms like it, and in fact, it, it resonates with the book of Habakkuk that the psalmist cries out, Habakkuk's going to cry out the same thing, how long, O Lord? How long? Have you ever had that question? I think if you're honest, we all have, right? We've all at times said, how long, O Lord? Maybe the specifics of that question are, are different. In Psalm 13, the psalmist said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You ever feel that way where you feel like you are praying and the prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling? It's like they're not even getting to the heaven where God is. Or, or that He has somehow forgotten you. Or The psalmist says, how long will you hide your face from me? This, this feeling, this subjective feeling that God is, is not there or that He's not listening or that He's hiding His face. But I, I love so often in these psalms, and we're going to see it in the book of Habakkuk today as well, that this honesty of, of asking questions to God, it never turns into accusations. Accusations are sinful, and we're going to see that. But questioning and asking God to, to do according to His character and do according to His promises, this is a mark of a child of God. And of course, the psalmist reminds himself of what's true. He says, you know, it feels like it feels like you've forgotten me, Lord. It feels like you've hidden your face from me, but really, I've trusted in your steadfast love, your covenant love, your said, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Over and over in, in the Psalms, uh, David is this way. He doesn't let his heart speak to him. He speaks to his heart. He doesn't let his heart accuse him or speak to him or dominate his thinking. Instead, he reminds his own heart, his seat of his affections, what is true. And the psalmist says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I don't know what the future holds, but I can look to the past and I can see that he has dealt bountifully with me. He hasn't treated me as my sins deserved. He gave me Jesus. He forgave my sins. He saved me from the destructive path I was on where I was going to make a wreck of my life. And I was going to be bankrupt and at the end of myself and He saved me and He gave me a new mind and a new heart and new affections. He's dealt bountifully with me. This is reflected in the book of Habakkuk as well. Uh, in fact, I just want to read the first uh, section of it here. The book of Habakkuk. The oracle, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. 
strife and contention arise, the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Wow. You know, this is a a classic question. In fact, this is why some people will say they don't want to believe in, in Christianity. Because if God is completely good, and He's completely powerful, that's what we claim about God, is that He's all good and He's all powerful. In fact, those two statements in themselves don't create a problem. The problem arises when we add a third sentence, right? Evil exists. If God is all good and God is all powerful... Why does evil exist? We see it. We don't have to look very far. And we see that evil exists. And so some people say, I can't believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-good and allows this evil to exist. He must not either be good, he must really be evil himself, or he really must not be all-powerful. There must be some things out of his control like this evil. And so this apparent contradiction and paradox has caused some people to accuse God of of not really being who He says He is. But we have to add a fourth statement to this. God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil exists. And fourthly, God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. You see, if God is all good and God is all powerful and He knows that evil exists, He must have allowed it. And if He allowed it, it means He has a morally sufficient reason for it. We may not understand it yet, but He's all good and all powerful. See, this was Habakkuk's question, I think. is He's, he's saying, God, I know your character. I'm not doubting who you are. I know that you're all powerful and you're all good and I see this evil before me. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is this nation of Assyria prospering later on? I think it's, it's a little while later after Babylon comes in. He's going to say, why is Babylon prospering? Why do the wicked prosper? And this was a challenge perhaps to his own faith. He was voicing for sure the questions of the people of Israel. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's voicing some of your own questions here this morning. Why, why is there so much wickedness before me? God, if you're all-powerful and all-good, why? Now once again, I said there's a difference between questioning and accusing Once we begin accusing God, we're in sin. But doubting and questioning, those aren't sin in and of themselves. In fact, we're going to see this is the lesson of Habakkuk. He's going to conclude, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever He ordains is right. And so his first question here, how long, O Lord? It's it's in the Psalms a dozen times. How long, O Lord? We see it over and over. Job says, how long? You remember Job? This righteous man who walked on the earth, who had all of this wealth, he had this large family, and he glorified God, and God brings him up to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, it's only because you protect him. Let me deal with him, and he'll curse you. God said, no, he won't. Go ahead, don't touch his body. That was the first part, right? 
And so in one day he receives word that he's lost all of his wealth, all of his children are killed in a building collapse as they were celebrating and feasting. And he's struck down to the earth. And yet, in all of this, Job did not sin. So Satan goes to him again and says, well, let me touch his body. So God says, okay, don't kill him. And then he has all these weeping sores on him, and he's sitting on an ash heap, and he's scraping the boils on his body with a pot, a broken pot, to burst the boils to relieve the pain and the pressure. He was a mess. And his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And yet, what was Job's response? I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will stand on the earth with my eyes. Though my flesh is destroyed, with my eyes I shall see God. And then he has these wonderful counselors that come. And they sit with him. And they basically tell him, the reason you're suffering, Job, is because you sinned. Now, sometimes the Bible does teach that sometimes the reason we suffer is our sin. But not always. In fact, that's why the book of Job, I believe, is in the Bible. To show us that sometimes our suffering is not sin, just like when Jesus healed the man born blind. It wasn't that his parents sinned or that he would sin, but that the people would see the glory of God on display. And so Job says, God, would you answer me? You've hidden your face from me. How long? Well, when God does show up and answer him, just read Job 38 to 40. God says, okay, Job, you've had a bunch of questions for me. Now I have some for you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars into space? Where were you when I put Leviathan in the ocean or Behemoth, the behemoth on the ground, on the land? Where were you? Job said, I don't have an answer. Let me just shut my mouth. (laughs) It's shaped like my foot right now. I'm not going to say a word. And God goes on. And he speaks, who's going to give me counsel? Who's going to tell me what to do, Job? And Job's response at the end, of course, is, you know, I had heard of you of the hearing of the ear, but now I see you and I repent in dust and ashes. And the amazing thing about this is that God doesn't rebuke Job. God rebukes the counselors and says, Job better pray for you unless you die. And so God vindicates Job even after he's placed him in this suffering. And here Habakkuk has the same question. And I know that you, some of you, will have the same question this morning. God, where are you? Where are you in my life? How long? How long will I cry for help and you won't hear? Now that's not the reality. That's that's how he feels. That's not the reality. God hears the prayers of his saints. He delights to hear our prayers. But Habakkuk is asking, why do the wicked prosper and flourish? And why is justice and mercy defied? And if God is the judge of all the earth, why is there so much injustice? And at this time, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably Israel, the king of Israel at this time was Jehoiakim, which Jehoiakim was a puppet king who was put up by Assyria. He was ineffective, he was weak, and more importantly, he was wicked. Jeremiah 22 says of him, you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding of innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. That's how he was characterized as a puppet king for Assyria. 
He abused his people and took advantage of them. And as we've seen in the minor prophets, this is what the prophets have indicted the rulers and the people for. You know, this cry of how long? This is the cry in Revelation 6.10 of the martyrs under the throne. They say, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true are you? How long will you until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you remember the answer there? A little while longer. You see, we should never mistake God's patience for weakness. Never. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Scripture says He desires that none should perish, but all should come to Him. And so He's long-suffering and He's waiting patiently. Romans says He's enduring with great patience those vessels who are preparing themselves for destruction so that He can pour His grace and His mercy and His blessings upon those vessels He's prepared beforehand for glory in Romans 9. Don't take His patience for weakness. The fact that He hasn't acted does not mean He cannot act or He will not act. He will. He's going to send the Lord Jesus back to make all things new. And so He has a reason why He has not acted yet. And we know from Scripture that it's for His glory and for our joy. He's going to make us like Jesus. Our sufferings are going to produce something in us that can't be produced any other way. And so Yahweh responds, verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's synonymous with the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, their dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. What a response. He says, how long are you going to allow this wickedness of Jehoiakim, this puppet king of Assyria who has persecuted our people? And he says, I'll give you an answer. I'm going to send the Babylonians to come in, and they're going to conquer you. And they're going to destroy the Assyrians. A wicked nation was going to be the instrument of judgment upon Habakkuk's society. And this says something about God. I mean, I don't know if that makes you a little bit uncomfortable that God's going to use a wicked nation to punish a wicked nation. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But this is what God says to him. And this teaches us that God does use means to accomplish His purposes. And sometimes He allows in His sovereign purposes wicked means to accomplish good ends. For example, He's not the author of sin, James tells us, nor did He cause anybody to sin. And yet we know... Romans 8.28 teaches us God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him 
And so for those of us who love Him, who've been born again, we know that even our sinful choices in the past have worked out for God's glory and our good. We would never want to repeat them, but we know that was the means God allowed in our lives to use us to either draw us to Himself, to bring us to the end of ourselves because I can no longer be king in my world and I have made a mess of it, or He uses those, that sinfulness to break us fully and finally from that kind of sin, perhaps, to where we go and sin no more, like the woman caught in adultery. Well, then we have another complaint, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, and commentators think that some time had passed since Habakkuk's first question, that the Chaldeans had invaded the land, and now Habakkuk is questioning, what about them now? They're violent. How can you use a wicked instrument? And, and in this, I want you to see that Habakkuk isn't doubting the power of God or the character of God. He doesn't understand. He says, verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He knows God's character. He says in verse 13, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, this is who you are. Why, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He describes it like a fisherman. The Chaldeans were like a fisherman who just kept raking in the catch and getting wealthy. Were they just going to keep raking in the people of Israel? Now, once again, he knows God's character and we're going to see in chapter 2 that this is actually, he's doubting, but he's expressing within this doubt, he's actually praying to God. These are two prayers. So he didn't stop praying. And secondly, he's actually expressing his faith to God and saying, I, I'd want to know the answer, but I'm trusting you. There's a difference, as I said, between asking and accusing. It's important to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt and unbelief. What is the difference? Doubt is simply not knowing, not being sure. It turns to unbelief when we seek truth. Rather than seek truth and submit to God, we reject the answers God gives us or we assume all that, we can, that can be known. Uh, we know all that can be known and we turn away from the truth. See, we don't want our doubt to turn into unbelief. Habakkuk here is doubting. He doesn't know but he's not turning to unbelief. He's praying to God, asking Him. You know, that's a good, good test if you are in doubt or unbelief. Are you talking more to people about how God has wronged you? That's unbelief. Or are you asking God to give you answers for what you don't understand? See, Habakkuk is praying to God and saying, God, I don't understand. Can you give me answers? And we see in chapter 2, verse 1, he's resolved to wait upon the Lord's answer. And I think this is true. Doubting, I want you to be encouraged by this. Doubting is not sin as long as you're straining to see God and His answers. 
It's okay to not know and have doubts. But when it turns to unbelief, and you begin to say, God, I don't trust you. I don't want to hear your answers. I'm just going to go with what I know. That's unbelief and that's sin. And we can be free from guilt in our doubt as long as we are waiting upon the Lord and His truth. But unbelief is rebellion against God. It's rebellion, pure and simple. And you know, unbelief can even disguise itself as belief when it's cloaked in truisms and right answers. And we give all the platitudes and tell people at church what they want to hear because we know the right answers. But in our heart, we don't believe God is really for us or He's going to do us good. We begin to question His character or we question His power. But look what Habakkuk does. Chapter 2, verse 1. He asks this question and then he says this, I will take my stand on my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what He will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What is he saying here? He's going to wait on the Lord. He's going to wait on the Lord and see how God is going to answer him. Now, remember, he's asking, he's not accusing. So he says, I'm going to be like a watchman at the watch post. I'm going to stand on the wall, as it were, looking out, diligently waiting for God's answer. Sometimes we say we want to wait, but after a day or two, we're done waiting. (laughs) I don't know anybody like that. And we're going to take things into our own hands and come up with our own answers and solve our own problems. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. This is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. I encourage you to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to start in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? See, that's the same question, but it's turned into a complaint. And here's what his answer is Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even young youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I remember we sang this song, uh, verse uh, 21. We sang as a song when I was a little kid in church. And it didn't mean much to me other than it was just a song from my childhood. But as I've grown in the Christian life and as I've faced sorrows and as I've had to wait on the Lord for answers, this verse has become so precious to me that they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Because isn't that the hardest time to wait when you don't have any strength? It's easy to wait when you have strength and you can accomplish things yourself. When trials are small, But I don't know about you, but in my own life, it's like when God sends one trial, He sends ten. He wants to put me to the place where, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we despaired even of life. So that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but the God who raises the dead. And that might be where you're at this morning. You feel like your life is in such bad straits and you are so helpless and weak that you need God to raise the dead. Well, he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Ephesians says resurrection power is at work on your behalf. That Paul wanted the Ephesians to know how great is the power that is currently at work in your life from God the Father. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You are not alone and you haven't been abandoned. God is on his throne and he has you right where he wants you. He has you in your life right where He wants you. So that you'll learn to trust Him and wait upon Him. See, two keys to waiting patiently. One is humility, and the second is hope. The first is humility. We can't wait patiently if we're full of pride. What we'll do is we'll say, you know what, forget this, I'll do it myself. I'm going to make myself be successful. I'm going to give myself work. I'm going to give myself money. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to work hard and roll up my sleeves and get it done. Well, that doesn't happen, does it? Because we don't know the future. We don't know tomorrow. And we're not all powerful. So even if we did know the future, we would be helpless to change it. But we serve one who not only knows the future, he ordained the future. He's sovereign and he's seated on his throne. And he does whatever he pleases. And no one gives him counsel and no one thwarts him. And he is for us and not against us. The Spirit has poured forth the Father's love in our hearts so that what do we cry now? Abba, Father. He's our Father. He is for us. And not against us. And if he is for us, who could be against us? No one. Waiting with humility. And secondly, Waiting with hope. We don't want to despair. We don't want to grow weary in well-doing. We want to wait with hope. We want to wait and say, my hope is in you, Lord. My hope isn't in my circumstances. My hope isn't in how successful or strong or capable I might be. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in a God who is good and powerful and who is for me and not against me. And so I will wait. Like a watchman on the towers, I will wait. And what God says to him, turn back to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 3. 
chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord answers Habakkuk. And He gives him a vision. And in verse 3, He says, I'm going to give you a vision, and when it comes, you're going to have a full and satisfying answer. And it's going to come in my perfect time. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision waits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I mean, listen to what God is saying to him. I know you have questions, but it's not yet the appointed time. Although it's coming. And by the way, when this vision comes and this answer comes, it will not lie. It'll be full and satisfying to you. It may seem slow. Isn't that, isn't that how it feels sometimes with the Lord? You say, Lord, it sure seems like you're slow to answer. It may seem slow, but wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. It will be at the perfect time. <laughs> Someone told me one time, God is rarely early. He's never late. He's always right on time. And it's true. And so then, he begins to speak about this nation, Yahweh's response. It's going to come in perfect time. You know, Jesus said the same thing in Luke 18. He says in verse 7 and 8, Will God not give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? He was talking about a second coming. And He said the justice that's going to come when Jesus comes again, it's going to come. God will not delay long over them. And so we have to keep God's perspective in mind. 2,000 years it's been since Jesus God says that's not a long delay. It may seem long to us, but it's not long. Then he says, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So he tells Habakkuk, the one who's a righteous man, he's going to live by his faith. He's going to wait on the Lord. The one who's not righteous, his soul is puffed up. He's full of pride. He's not going to wait patiently. Now, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 10.38, this word, the righteous shall live by his faith, is applied to those who are looking for the coming of Jesus. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so we're going to walk waiting on Jesus' return. In Romans 1.17 and in Galatians 3.1, Paul uses this verse to defend justification by faith alone illustrated by the life of Abraham. And the faith that is counted as righteous is Galatians 2.16, faith in Jesus Christ, because He's the one whom God has brought saving grace through, and He's brought people near to Him through Christ. And so He says, the righteous shall live by His faith. See, there's an evidence that you're a child of God, that you've been justified and declared righteous, is that you live by your faith. You wait patiently on the Lord for his answers in your life. And you don't go and worship at the idol of yourself and your own sufficiency and decide that you're going to be God and king in your life and you're going to provide all of your answers and all of your salvation. It won't happen. Your kingdom will fall apart, crumble to ruins 
it will be like shifting sand. So then he says, verses 5 to 20, the rest of chapter 2, this is his answer to Habakkuk. It's not yet the vision, but it's his answer to Habakkuk. And he says, I did use Babylon, Chaldea, as an instrument, but I'm going to judge them too. I'm going to denounce them. And he gives five woes. Verses 6 to 8, he says, woe to those who plunder the wealth of others. Verses 9 to 11, he says, woe to those who seek security for themselves while denying it to others. Verses 12 to 14, he says, woe to those who commit bloodshed and brutality and slavery. Verses 15 to 17, woe to those who degrade and humiliate others in order to destroy their will to resist. Babylon had basically just stamped out any will to resist by the people. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says, woe to those who worship idols. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Verse 18, chapter 2. A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. You could bling out that iPhone with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. You can tell it to awake. You could tell Siri, awake. It won't awake. There's no salvation in the idols that are made, that are their own creation. And it's foolish to trust in them. I mean, think about that. We, we try to say that we don't worship idols. I mean, but, but they're all over. We try to seek our salvation and deliverance in things other than God. And when we do that, it's an idol. And they never deliver. They never save. God is the one that we're to wait on and to trust in and we're to live by faith and we're to walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, in contrast to all of these woes, right there in the middle of this section, verse 14, look at chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In contrast to Babylon, God's kingdom will have no end. No end. And it's going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In other words, God's kingdom will be the, over the whole earth. And it's going to be glorious. And what is it going to be consisted of and in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Glory is this idea of His, his weightiness, his, his presence, His attributes, who He is. He's going to be known. In fact, his name was synonymous with his glory. And so he says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know how you know God? You need to know Jesus Because Jesus has revealed the Father. That's what Philip said. Just show us the Father. It'll be enough. And Jesus responded to Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, this is why we preach Christ. This is what John, the apostle, said in in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what did he say? We beheld His glory. We saw it. 
this one who's full of grace and truth, we beheld his glory. And in beholding his glory, we beheld the glory of the Father. In knowing Jesus, we know the Father. We know God. And so the proper response to all of this, verse 20, is worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The proper response is worship. I mean, think about this for us today. You have the nation of Israel, they're under oppression. First under Assyria, then under Babylon, the prophet of God, who's God's man, who's speaking with God's voice, is telling the people, God says, wait patiently. He's going to come and he's going to bring judgment and he's going to deliver and his kingdom will have no end and it's going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so wait patiently on the Lord and have faith in him. This applies to us today, doesn't it? As we're in America And we look at what's going on in this election cycle. And we see the kind of things, the laws that are being passed. And we say, where's the Lord? What's happening? And we're going to be outcasts in our own society simply because we believe in Christ. And we want to obey the Bible and do what it says. This word is for us as well. We need to wait patiently. The Lord is in His temple And let all the earth keep silence before Him. I'm not going to accuse Him. I may have doubts about God. Why are you allowing this or that in our culture? Why are you allowing this or that to pass? But I'm not going to accuse Him. I'm going to wait patiently. The just shall live by faith. We're going to wait. And He's not going to delay overly long. When He comes, He's going to come in His appointed time, His perfect time. The proper response is worship. It's worship. Getting our eyes off this world and all of its problems and getting our eyes on the one who's worthy of all of our life and our worship. The one who's sovereign and in control. And that's what chapter 3 is, is it's a song of worship. It's a psalm. It says in verse 3, one, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. But then it says, according to the Shigianoth, That's a designation of a psalm. And so this is a prayer put to music and it's worship. And I want to read the whole thing to you. Listen to what he says. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the mountains and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and He measured the earth. He looked and He shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cush. Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. 
You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Wow, he says... I've received this vision and I've put it in a song. And what's going to happen is God is going to come. And, and Habakkuk in verses 1 and 2, he's filled with fear, but he's also filled with hope. He says, I'm waiting for this, but I also tremble. Because he sees a theophany. He sees an appearing of God in glory. And it, it's as if he appears from the desert in the south and he comes up and he wipes out his enemies. And he's manifested in glory and he's manifested in judgment. And in verses 8 to 12, it's a picture of war. And there's all this imagery of creation failing. And, and it's as if Yahweh is battling against chaos itself. And he's pictured as a warrior in his chariot riding against his enemy. And all of nature acknowledges the supreme power of Yahweh because he's the one who put it into existence. Isn't it interesting, he says in verse 6, the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. These hills and mountains we think are going to be forever, the one who's forever is the one in verse 6 who has everlasting ways, Yahweh. And he makes low the creation and he causes it to tremble. And when he comes, he, he threshes and tramples all of chaos under his feet, and he says who the enemy is. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury and you thresh the nations in anger. So ultimately, all of these pictures of, of the cosmos and the chaos that he's battling is ultimately about these nations, Babylon, and in the future, those who are against his people when Jesus comes again. This total destruction of the enemy happens in verses 13 to 15. And he pictures it as crushing the enemy. Verse 13, the head of the house of the wicked, you laid him bare from thigh to neck. Wow. Cut him in half. Filleted him open. And this picture of his enemy this started in Genesis 3.15, didn't it? The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This has been the battle from the beginning. In fact, in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20, the enemies pictured, well, in Genesis 3 as a serpent, in Revelation 20 as a dragon, that serpent of old. 
and God through Christ conquers him. And in Revelation 20, he's cast and bound for a thousand years. And then he's released for a short time and then he's cast into the lake of fire, it says. And then death, the final enemy, is destroyed. And the new heavens and new earth are forever filled with the glory of the Lord and we're with him forever. This is the vision that Habakkuk saw. And so his response in 16 to 19 Habakkuk, he receives what he asked for in answer to his question. And so he sees that Yahweh is going to vindicate his divine righteousness by judging Babylon, even though he previously used them as an instrument. And so he's content to wait patiently for Yahweh. And, and I think, even though he may not have understood it completely, this is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. This wasn't fulfilled when Babylon was destroyed by his enemies. This, was fulfilled, this is fulfilled when Christ returns. But Habakkuk saw this, that God's salvation would come through judgment and God would be glorified. And think about it. The first step of this war when the victory was accomplished was at the cross. This is what Jesus said. It is finished. This is where Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. Jesus went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, Satan thought he had a great victory over him. But really it was his downfall. Because there Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved, didn't he? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the gospel message. That at the cross, Christ conquered the devil. Hebrews 2, He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released all of those who lived all their life in subject to bondage, who were through fear of death and subject to bondage, He released by His substitutionary death. This is what we believe. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and he conquered sin in the grave. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. And we're not alone. He poured out his spirit so that we're not abandoned. He said, if I go to be with my Father, I'll send you another helper who will be with you forever. And don't we need to hear that in the midst of feeling like we're abandoned? Wondering how long? We're not alone. We have the Spirit of God. And so we need not grieve the Spirit of God in us by chasing after other idols, but rather wait on the Lord humbly with hope, waiting for His deliverance. This is what Habakkuk comes to. Verses 17 and 18, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. That's an easy picture for us because all you got to do is drive down the road. I was like cursing all of the cherry pickers yesterday. I couldn't get anywhere. We were driving from Discovery Bay from the baseball game over to the other side of town. It took me a half an hour. I wanted the cherry trees to not blossom or fruit to be on the vines. No, it's wonderful. It was actually a joy to see, right? But he says, the produce of the olive, if it fails and the fields yield no fruit, Food, the flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herds in the stalls. 
It's easy to praise God when life and health and prosperity are in abundance, isn't it? It's easy to praise God when things are going well. But what about when they're lacking? To rejoice in God for His own sake, not simply for what He gives you, is evidence of true saving faith. Those who are just, who walk and live by their faith. True faith is built on a firm foundation. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Habakkuk is an example of the righteous one who lives by his faith. And, and he, he had been considering God. He was praying to God. He was meditating on God. And then he observed a vision of God's coming. And he says... What is my conclusion, verse 18? I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's my conclusion. Whatever my God ordains is right. See, Abraham learned this lesson as well. I don't know if you remember, he was wrestling and struggling with God in prayer over the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, would you not save that city if there were 50 righteous people in it? And you know what he says to God? He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer, of course, is yes, of course he will. He will do what is right. And whatever he ordains is right. I I was reminded of, of, of last week as Frank was preaching, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, this light momentary affliction It doesn't feel like it's light or momentary sometimes, does it? But this is what Paul says. This light momentary affliction is preparing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is wisdom. These things that we see in our life that we think are going to overwhelm us, they too shall pass. They're transient. Things that are unseen are eternal. And so, it's preparing in us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, all description. It can't be measured. This is why Jesus, Matthew 11 He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he said. He said, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. Because he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes we think living the Christian life means that it kills joy or that it it robs us of of being successful or having abundance i mean after all we give our money away we give our time away we 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 want to be honest and do the right thing in our jobs and so we lose promotions because we're not going to cheat to get ahead sometimes it feels like everything we do is is working not for our good but for our bad But that's the lies of the world and the devil. These things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so we need to wait with humility and hope on the Lord and trust in Him and say, whatever my God ordains is right. In fact, there was a hymn written by a German Lutheran in the 1600s. 
um, Indelible Grace uh, redid it in, on one of these albums I have that's wonderful. Uh, we sing a couple of their songs in church. But it, it says this, and I just want to read you a couple of these lines from this hymn. Whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I should not fall. Therefore, to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He will never deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait the day. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I know I have brothers and sisters here who need to hear this. I need to hear this, Father. Because this world is a veil of tears. It is a fallen world and we're pilgrims passing through and we are affected We're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We suffer the consequences of our own bad decisions. And yet we know this world is not our home. We know that there is glory waiting for us. Because we're going to be with you forever. And with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that day. In fact, every trial, every sorrow, every tear on this earth ought to make us long and hope for the day when Christ returns and He makes all things new. That we would cry out, not in accusation, but in just simple plea with the saints under your throne, how long, O Lord, until you come and you deliver and you make all things new? How long? We should cry out, Maranatha, come! Our Lord, come! May your spirit bring your love and your peace and your grace to our hearts this morning through your word. May you comfort those who are weeping, those who are mourning. May you bring joy to those who are in deep darkness. Father, may you bring peace to those who have great anxieties and fears this morning. May you do your work through Christ. May you deliver and save And heal the affections. And heal the emotions. Father, I ask that you would do this for my brothers and my sisters. May your power be on display in their lives. And may they respond in worship. And put their joy and their hope and their trust in you. And may they be able to say, Whatever my God ordains is right. I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.